Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jason Bailey, better known as Art Gnome, a prominent NFT collector and founder and CEO of Club NFT, a platform to help collectors discover, protect, and share NFTs. So welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thanks for having me on, Brian. The pleasure's all mine. I was so delighted to make to make the connection. You're a, a big name in the field for so many different different reasons. Uh, but for people who don't already know who you are, I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your background, sort of what you've done in the past and how you came to the place where you, you became interested in, in NFTs. Sure. Yeah. Um, I usually like to go all the way back to the beginning with my background and I've been trying to get more and more efficient at it, but I think it helps if you know my background to understand why I am the way I am. And, um, Actually, usually start by saying I grew up in a family of engineers. So my dad was an engineer, my older brother was an engineer, my younger brother was an engineer. And pretty much every conversation growing up, breakfast, lunch, dinner, vacation was about engineering. And I'm actually really lousy at science and math and have very little or had very little interest in that. All I ever wanted to be from the time I was, you know, four or five years old was an artist, the same way that a lot of kids want to be like a baseball player or a musician I wanted to be like Mark Rothko or Pollock. So um, spent a lot of time uh, studying art and by myself making art um, and was sort of the black sheep in the family and was lucky enough, despite having sort of bad high school academic performance to get into Framingham State, where I kind of turned it around because I was given the opportunity to focus on what I cared about and studied traditional painting, sculpture and printmaking and art history and you know, it was sort of the high point in my life up to that point. But then when I graduated in um, 2000, or I guess 2001, um, started my job search actually on 9-11. Um, and it was really hard to find a job for anyone at that time, and uh, particularly for artists. So I figured out pretty quickly that what everyone had told me all along that, you know, um, getting an art degree was dangerous, and it was hard to find a job and all that was actually kind of true. And, and I kind of put my tail between my legs and went into the tech space, um, sort of the family trade initially as a designer and then more in marketing and later on more in business. Um, but all along the way, wanted to be around um, other artists and sort of in that creative space. So went back to school nights from 2007 to 2010 and got my MFA at a really unique program called the Dynamic Media Institute or DMI at Massachusetts College of Art. And they were like really radically into things like generative art and data visualization and, you know, UX, UI design. A lot of these things that have become popular or standard, but that were like pretty unique and nerdy back in 2007. Um, and that was a huge gift because um, I think it, it helped sort of set the foundation for a lot of my interests and helped me make sense of this background of being um, someone who wanted to be an artist, but that was always around tech. And it helped me blend the two together. Um, so a couple of years after that, you know, I, I kind of got used to this um, lifestyle of having side projects, you know, my thesis when I was at um, my grad program, but having a really busy work life and then having side projects that were big and meaty that I could work on every night and every weekend and sort of missed having sort of that thesis. Um, so I, for a couple of years, did projects around basketball and data visualization that actually uh, with my younger brother that took off really quickly. Um, you know, we got like a quarter million uh, website viewers like a month after launching. And it taught me that um, if you are deeply passionate about something and you write about it and share, um, that you can actually build a pretty huge audience on the, the web today. Um, so we did that for a couple of years. And then my, my brother ended up having kids and I got preoccupied with a new job. Um, but, you know, still thinking in terms of liking having these large projects. I read a book called Provenance um, about forgery of paintings, but not only of, of artworks, but also of the actual provenance. Um, really great book. Always recommend it to folks. Um, one of the stats that, that I pulled from it was that something like 10 to 15% of artworks 
at uh, museums and, and on auction are either forged or misattributed. So that, you know, kind of stopped me in my tracks. That's a hard number to prove. But, um, you know, I think a lot of people I talk to say that's actually on the conservative side. And for someone that grew up wanting to be um, an artist and, who you know, for me, art history, I always say is sort of my religion and art museums or my churches. It felt like someone was rewriting a portion of my religion. Um, and, you know, I, I found it sort of personally offensive. So um, after being sort of depressed about it for a few months, um, I talked to my uh, my wife and my brothers and they were like, why don't you try to build sort of a, a database, you know, because uh, I guess I'm skipping a step here, you know, having been in, in analytics and data, I thought, well, how is it even possible that we have like, you know, the, these number of, uh, of forgeries because, um, you know, the art market's like a $65 billion a year market. We've got museums all over the place with temperature control and like, you know, security guards and every major university has um, an art history department. So we have all these signals that we care about art, you know, um, as sort of our shared cultural heritage. But when it comes to having sort of just a basic inventory to avoid uh, forgery, um, there isn't one, right? So I reached out to Harvard and Yale and the Getty Institute and the Smithsonian, and I was like, where's where's the database that actually just lists all the works by the best-known artists? And they all came back one by one with the same exact answer. They said, sadly, no such database exists. Um, it's a huge problem, and, you know, we wish one did, but we were all pretty convinced it's not going to happen for, you know, for a variety of reasons. So this blew my mind. Uh, the examples I give are often like you can hop online right now and find three or four sites that'll tell you all the Beanie Babies that are out there or all the Pez dispensers. But like until very recently, if I Googled like how many paintings did Jackson Pollock make, Google would come back and say like about two, um, you know, it just didn't know. Right. Um, so uh, I, long story short, I um, worked with my brother to build a rig that uh, allowed me to scan large catalogs resume um, and started with local libraries, realized that most libraries don't carry catalogs resume. They're super um, expensive and rare books. Um, and through sort of this long adventure, um, kind of traveled around the world, getting my hands on these ultra rare catalogs resume, scanned them, built the world's largest database of complete works by 20th century artists. Um, not because I thought that I could do it all on my own, but because so many people told me it was impossible. I thought, well, if I can just loosen the lid on the jar and show what one nerdy guy can do nights and weekends with, you know, his own discretionary income, maybe someone else can come along and sort of pick up the project. So uh, one day I thought about this project and I hadn't really had an audience for it. I was just mostly doing it because I felt like it was the right thing to do. And I thought if I get hit by a bus, no one's ever going to know about any of the, the work that I've done. And it's less about the, wanting the credit and more about wanting to solve this problem, right? Like, you know, um, no one will know where the data is. And really data itself, I've learned a long time ago, isn't particularly consumable or interesting to the average person. It's really through the visualization and the storytelling and the narrative that people can understand it. So thinking back to my basketball analytics um, site and how quickly I grew an audience there, I was like, maybe I'll start a, um, a blog where I'll write about this data, why it's important, how to use it to analyze things, blend some of that data on complete works with um, with market data to help people, you know, when, when you start putting dollars in people that maybe are less academic start to care because they're like, Ooh, you know, now it's, now it's about the market. Um, and that got a lot of attention really quickly. So 538 came to my house and did a big piece on it. And I grew an audience pretty quickly, um, and got invited to present at Sotheby's and Christie's and different places around the world. And when I would go to those art events, uh, often during breaks, I would ask, you know, why is it that people don't care about, um, digital art? I don't ever see anyone talking about digital art. And like, to me, you know, again, my grad program focused a lot on that. And I was like, to me, generative art in particular, but digital art is the most important art of our generation. I like to do this exercise where I fast forward a hundred years, you know, uh, and look back to what the, the, the generation that we live in and history has a way of sort of knocking off details and rough edges. And you really kind of only core things sort of rise to the top. And, I imagine, you know, if you look from 1950, 1960 to, let's say, you know, 2030, it's really this digital transformation that we've gone through that really has changed everything in our life from how we eat, sleep, date, marry, work, travel, like everything, right? So they're not going to look back and be like, oh, like, did someone invent a new brush stroke or whatever? They're going to look back and say, like, who's utilizing the tools of that time 
in the way that best reflects the way that society was changing. And for me, it's just always felt fairly obvious that it's digital artists. So um, feeling passionate about this, you know, and talking to sort of the old art world at all these events, I realized there was an, a, a need and an opportunity to do some education. Um, so I swapped over from talking about analytics and data on Art Gnome and focused for a couple of years on sort of generative artists and how artists are using things like artificial intelligence um, and machine learning. And um, that actually got some, it turns out there was an audience for that and, and that got some pickup. Um, also how you could use those tools to sort of do things like have visual search um, for, for databases. So not just artists, but, you know, as uh, art tools. Um, and maybe a year or so into that, um, Ahmed Hosni, who's a sort of a brilliant friend of mine that I met through doing research on people using AI and ML um, for auction prediction um, of art, told me over pizza, um, he was like, hey, you should check out the blockchain. And I was like, uh, I don't know. That's like blockchain is like those guys in their basement, like farming money, you know, like, you know, their mom's basement or whatever with like the neckbeard guys, which is funny because now I'm like a neckbeard guy too. So maybe that's what converted me, converted me over. And, and my blockchain friends hate when I sort of use that stereotype, but like, it is what I was thinking. I'm like, I don't really, what do I care about currencies and stuff like that? Like I'm a nerd, but I'm not, I care about art. Right. Um, but I really respected Ahmed. So um, I did a week or so after that conversation on a Saturday uh, morning, like today, spent a couple of hours researching blockchain and I wasn't an expert and I'm still not an expert, but it was just immediately apparent to me, this is late 2017, immediately apparent to me how you could graft the blockchain as a solution onto a bunch of the problems that I'd seen in the art world. So uh, real quickly, I think the the four that I wrote about, I think in 2017 were um, provenance. So, you know, you think about that project I was working on and how much time and energy I was spending because provenance was being forged. When you have an immutable ledger, which is a fancy description for a blockchain, just means a list of transactions that people can't mess with. Um, you've got a great foundation for provenance. Then you think about how I've been going to these events and telling everybody, hey, these digital artists are super important. And part of the feedback was, yeah, but you can't really own the work. Like it's all, you can see it for free. So why would you buy it? Um, and I thought about, well, if we've got these digital currencies, right, that are provably scarce and ownable, why couldn't we apply that um, also to, to digital artworks, right? So that light bulb went off. Then as a failed artist who couldn't find a way to make any money, um, you know, smart contracts, it became pretty immediately aware to me that there was an ability to bake in uh, royalties so that not just the primary sale, but every secondary sale could yield um, additional income for artists. And, you know, most of my friends are artists, having spent half my life in art school. And um, I'm now 43. Until I was the age of 42, I knew one person who made a living on art full time. All the others like taught or had other jobs or things like that. In the last year, year and a half, I now have, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of friends that can work on their art full time. Because there's this sort of massive interest in digital art and NFTs, but also it takes out these royalties, take out the lumpiness um, of being an artist. Instead of getting paid for two or three paintings a year or whatever, and then kind of starving, feast or famine in between, uh, people are able to, to um, benefit from sort of the secondary sales that, that go on. And then the last thing was um, around the... Um, the what I was calling the democratization of collecting sort of blue chip art. So, you know, I could never afford to buy a Picasso painting, but there's sort of this um, fractionalization um, that's inherent to blockchain technology that allows for people almost like stocks, but less with less regulation to break something up into many smaller pieces. Um, I've become less excited about that in the last four or five years, because I think when you like, go that far to commodifying a physical artwork and you have a thousand or 5,000 owners, it usually ends up in a free port, which is like not a great spot for, for an artwork to, uh, to go. But, um, I wrote that article on a Sunday as the story goes on or on a Saturday. And as the story goes on a Sunday, I woke up, I had already had pretty good SEO around art and tech and the crypto markets were going crazy at that point in time, which actually I was pretty unaware of because it was all new to me. And I had a uh, hundred or so emails um, in my inbox inviting me to speak around the world as an expert on blockchain and art because there just was an absence of, of writing um, around it and people that had a foot in tech and had a foot in art. 
Um, like, like any good, um, uh, you know, person would do, I just agreed to, to take all these speaking engagements, even though I had no idea what I was talking about. Um, so in particular, I was invited to, to speak in London, um, at Christie's, um, on blockchain and art and said yes. And then thought, well, I better actually figure this stuff out and reached out to the community. I was lucky just a few weeks after that in early 2018, there was the Rare AF conference in New York City, which most people refer to as sort of the seminal event of crypto art and NFTs. Um, prior to that, it was just pockets of people working with NFTs um, as individuals that were sort of artists that were interested in blockchain or blockchain people that had passing interest in art and kind of messing around with how you know how you could combine these things. But there was nothing akin to a movement. And, you know, while these people argue today about who was the first or what were they doing, they, you know, a few people like Kevin McCoy maybe experienced sort of like um, minor interest as far back as like 2014 or 15. But it, it wasn't like there was a lot of traction um, in the space. And then at Rare AF in 2018, a lot of these people like the, the CryptoPunks guys, Matt and John, or the Rare Pepe crowd like Joe Looney or um, Bea and Judy from Data NYC, all these people kind of came together and we realized that there were a bunch of different subcultures, but that collectively as tolerant subcultures of the other subcultures, we formed um, what we all kind of, you could feel it in the air that there was like a movement um, in, in early 2018. And that movement, you know, even though there were different subcultures, was really driven by this shared idea that the old crusty sort of art world um, had become too exclusive for its own good and, and fairly irrelevant and wasn't working for most people. And, you know, while, you know, theoretically there would be ways that you could go back and try to change that old art world, we looked at it a bit like an oak tree, right? Like, can you change the direction of an oak tree? Yeah, but it's it's pretty hard, right? And we looked at NFTs, which we weren't even calling NFTs for until years later, as sort of like a sapling, right? So the sapling was fragile and imperfect, but um, our chances of steering that sapling in a direction that we thought was uh, more open to a broader population, um, although imperfect, um, were, were much higher. Um, and I think that sort of that altruism was re what really unified us. Um, so for the next several years, I think most folks know there was it pretty quickly interest crashed um, by mid 2018. A lot of the marketplaces went out of business. A lot of the the people, the sort of the suits and the money that came running in to try to find money um, in this space in 2018, which we're seeing again now, um, those folks tended to just lose interest right away. But it was nice because you can, we kind of shook off the speculators and were left with the crazy creatives and tech guys and gals and builders and people that like were in it sort of unified for the right reason. And we continued to build for the next uh, two or three years. And late 2020, early 2021, we saw the sort of the Beeple sale, the famous $70 million sale at Christie's. And it was sort of a double-sided, um, uh, you know, sword or whatever, where it brought an insane amount of interest. And the goal was never to keep this like a tiny group of weird folks that are, you know, collecting and making art. We always thought that it could grow. But when everyone's introduction, the majority of people in the world's introduction to what we were doing was a 200 year old auction house selling, you know, art by, you know, I like people, but, you know, from a distance, people are like, it's a white tech bro selling um, an artwork for $70 million from a 200 year old auction house what's new here? Like, this is like, it feels like the worst in some ways of all the parts of the old art world. So, you know, for a lot of us, it was a matter of trying to um, sort of leverage that interest um, as a educational opportunity to talk about the version of this space that we had been fighting for and working for and trying to build together. Um, didn't, didn't necessarily, I mean, you could argue whether it worked or not. You know, uh, I think what we've seen in 2021 is sort of, um, amplification of that speculation um, to some degree. Um, but along with it, you know, nothing's all good or all bad. Along with it, we've seen a, a massive amount of um, artists be able to make a living. I've personally seen, like, what's really heartening for me is I've seen a lot of people that come in initially as speculators that literally could not give a shit about art, right? They're just like, this is just another token. And I'm like, I'm going to buy it because I bought 40 of these and 50 of these and this, that, and the other. And they go from just like not caring at all to like, then they're like, I don't really want to sell this one because I really like the artwork. 
to like starting to buy more of the artwork by that artist to like defending that artist a little bit in the uh, in Twitter or somewhere else to like trying to help that artist find opportunities to like, you know, do shows or whatever to like just full on being like, you know, uh, true, true art lovers. So for me, I mean, as someone who grew up in sort of a middle to lower middle class town, um, I never knew that art was like something that was for like considered exclusive or only for rich people to participate in. I actually thought it was like consolation for the poor because we had we had no money and you could get free museum passes. And I had heard about the starving artist trope. Right. And, you know, you go in and you hear the stories about Van Gogh or see, you know, Malay's paintings of the workers and stuff. And it wasn't actually until I graduated from from art school that I learned about the art market and that, you know, art was seen as sort of a, a luxury item or something like that. Right. So um, I think just trying to figure out how to make art sort of uh, approachable um, to, to more people. And we have a lot to do in the NFT space before we get there. So to get us all the way up to where we are today, um, also in the beginning of 2020, not only did we kind of have to fight this, this stigma that, um, you know, NFTs were like $70 million things sold from Christie's, but um, the environmental um, folks started coming in and saying, okay, you know, you guys are basically like destroying the planet for these JPEGs that you can see for free. You know, like this blockchain component doesn't really add anything here. Um, you know, how can you justify this? And I believe it was my friend um, Memo Aikton, who's a, a, also a, a digital artist, who kind of wrote um, the article that became sort of like the expose around this. And uh, artists generally tend to be, you know, the, the sort of Venn diagram of artists and, and environmentalists is, is pretty tight, right? So what I saw in early 2021 were these artists, often from countries that had pretty frail economies during COVID, who had been able to feed their families and pay their rent, like, thankfully, to NFTs, now getting, like, skewered by environmentalists um, and, you know, uh, sort of shamed and even death threats um, for, for some of them. Um, and uh, as a 30-year vegetarian who's an environmentalist myself and, like, who's yet to meet somebody who's just, like, psyched to burn the whole world down intentionally, um, was trying to figure out having friends on both sides. I could go in and try to, like, you know, really stand up for one side or the other, but that's not really, I would just be another loud voice. So I tweeted out, I uh, kind of fought that urge and I tweeted out, you know, if I were to throw a, a bunch of my own income and time into sort of an initiative to take all this anger and energy from all these smart and creative people and, you know, and actually try to apply it towards making this more efficient, um, would people come together for like a green NFTs initiative? So with the understanding that, it wouldn't solve everything. People uh, right away, people were like, yeah, that's not going to solve everything. I'm like, no, of course it's not going to solve everything. But like we should as um, sort of NFT creators and collectors own some of this problem and at least make an attempt to try to solve it. So um, the community was amazing. They came together and it was like, we very quickly raised a hundred thousand dollars and had 50 teams um, competing to half of it was around education and half of it was around um, trying to actual build actual solutions to make the uh, NFTs more efficient. Um, and everybody kind of came together to, to try to help solve it. We're actually working on sort of a second component um, of that now because we still have some, some funds around, but it felt like a good way to try to help this space that I care about so much kind of weather um, a, a difficult part of the storm which is really what I've been trying to do for the last four years, sort of as an individual. Uh, by 2021, though, the, the market, I think we're now at like $10 billion plus in NFT sales in 2021 through this first six months. And as someone who grew up in the Boston startup ecosystem, um, a lot of VCs and, and investors um, and angel investors and whatnot reached out to me and they were like, oh, you know that weird thing you've been talking about for like four years that we all ignored and thought you were crazy for like, you know, buying JPEGs for like tens to hundreds of dollars that everyone could see for free. And I was like, yeah, they're like, well, now that that's on like Saturday night live and like Ellen and all over the place, like it's pretty clear that that's the future. Can we like invest in you? Will you do like an art fund was actually, I got, I had about a dozen people that wanted to um, have me do an art fund, which was super flattering. I'm not going to lie at the beginning and kind of validating after four years of talking about like this stuff and no one caring. But the more I gave it thought, you know, collecting art is a very personal thing for me and one of the better parts of my life and like throwing in investor money and then having the show sort of a profit for it didn't make a lot of sense. Um, 
I did quite well in this space as someone who bought a bunch of art early, but there was zero inclination that any of these things would ever be worth anything. We were doing it purely to support artists because someone had to put money into the system to show that the system had any promise. Um, I now live in a house that's paid for with sales from JPEGs and, you know, uh, pretty close to being able to retire if I wanted to, but again, didn't see, didn't see that coming. Um, so anyway, uh, to, to wrap it up, um, in terms of the, the history, um, I turned down the, the offers to start an art fund, but, uh, an investor who I really respect, who I'd done some consulting work with said, look, I like you. I respect you a lot. Um, you know, and, and I think this is a hot space. If there's anything that you want to do in this space at all, you know, I'll write your first check. Um, so this is a guy I had met the year before when COVID first hit. I was really, really nervous as someone who's fairly data savvy. Um, and I had just spent time in China actually and came back uh, when, when COVID sort of first hit and have lots of friends in Italy. And I saw that the people around me were not taking this seriously. So I made um, sort of nights and weekends uh, a COVID tracker for Massachusetts, the state where I live, that looked at the county level and would show sort of over time how, you know, at the county level, um, COVID was changing with the thoughts that most people don't really care about things until they see that they're sort of locally going to affect them. And had this offsite, right? It was like the, the last time that people were really traveling, right? As COVID started to pick up with um, this, this client that I had and showed him the, the Massachusetts COVID tracker. And he was like, hey, if, um, if you know, I give you, you know, actually, I don't even think he said if I give you money, he just kind of in a very nice way said, go off, make one of these for every state, um, you know, as fast as you can and Puerto Rico, and I will pay for whatever the charges are, the expenses. This is like super important. And I don't need to have like, it doesn't have to list me anywhere. I don't need any to get anything out of this. This is just the right thing to do. Right. So kind of like uh, got a pretty quick man crush on this guy because I was like, wow, that's like, what a, what a great guy. Right. So he was the one that essentially reached back out to me a year later and was like, I believe in you. And I think it's an important space. But even then a week later, you know, startups are really hard. I've spent most of my life in startups. So I was like, I don't know that I want to commit the next like seven to 10 years of my life to something, you know, at random, even though this is an important space to me. Um, but this one problem that had sort of persisted through the previous four years that no one was working on um, kind of came to mind. So, you know, despite having done well in this space, a lot of the NFTs I bought in 2017, 2018 are now not available. They've disappeared. And, and I toured around the world on stages, like telling people like, don't worry if these marketplaces go out of business, like blockchain will make sure that you still have all your digital artworks. And like, you know, like that's the beauty of decentralization. And like, and I just didn't know. Right. And then we, we got a crash crash course in, the, in how this all works because you know, platforms like Ascribe and Additional and Rare Art Network and Digital Objects all went out of business. Now, we didn't like lose sleep over this when that happened because we had put maybe a few hundred dollars in as early collectors. Um, but now a lot of those early works are worth uh, potentially millions of dollars. So I have the first X-Copy artwork. He's probably one of the better known artists in the space. And Generally, the, the first work, which we call the Genesis work in this space, is considered the most valuable by the artist. So last month, Snoop Dogg bought an X-Copy for $4 million. So I'm guessing my Genesis X-Copy is probably worth about 8 or $9 million. But it was on a platform that no longer exists. Um, and so... And that's one of, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of artworks that I bought in 2017 and 18 on platforms that are, are defunct. I mean, there are people that are trying to go back and recover these now. We call it like um, NFT archaeologists. But what was interesting to me is in that four-year span, no one really worked on this problem that the images um, and the, what most people would consider the artwork, the video files, the images, a lot of the metadata, all of that is actually stored off-chain is what we call it. So not, not on the blockchain. There's a little bit of code that we call a token when we talk about NFTs, non-fungible token code that lives on the blockchain that can prove that you own something that you own specifically that token actually is what it proves um but that's not what most people consider the artwork like in the early days the the crypto nerds didn't care so much about the the images because they were actually fascinated in cryptography and the token was the thing that they were thrilled to own so if the images went away they were like i still got the token that was the thing they wanted but fast forward to 2021 in particular 
And the, the user experience is that collectors go to a marketplace, they sift through dozens, if not hundreds of images and videos, and they buy the image or video that they're emotionally attached to. And they don't even really know what the token is, right? So they think they're buying that. But the, the message that they hear is that like, oh, blockchain, you'll never lose this thing, right? But the reality is that the token that lives on the blockchain points with a link um, or a hash to a compressed version of those images and they're stored in this space. It's going to get a little nerdy for a second here called typically, if you're lucky, they're stored on IPFS. Um, but no matter where they're stored, storage isn't free. And if you as the collector aren't paying to store those files, what happens when marketplaces go out of business is you lose the, the your collection. It disappears. You're left with uh, tokens that point to nothing. Um, and that's, I, I lived that and experienced that in 2018 and was really surprised to see a market, a $10 billion market emerge with that core infrastructure problem not being addressed and no one really asking about it. Uh, what happened, I think, is that anyone that sort of had an entrepreneurial itch, like the, the, the lure to come in and start a marketplace was just so strong because it was like a money making machine. So everybody came in and made marketplaces and marketplaces actually, um, as often happens with competition, got better quick because uh, they were all competing with each other and the features, you know, of all. But, but the core infrastructure underneath was still really weak um, around this idea of off-chain assets and, and how to manage them. So people often ask, like, well, why wouldn't you just put them on the blockchain, right, if it has all these great properties? But um, the blockchain is, like, really, really bad for storing files in terms of cost, right? So I'm going to butcher the number here, um, so look it up yourselves. But it's something like, a, as of last year, like a megabyte, storing a megabyte on the blockchain was like $10,000 or something nuts like that. So it's pretty pretty much cost prohibitive, which is why people use things like IPFS. So um, long story short, that's one of many problems that don't have anything to do with buying and selling that just really haven't been addressed. Another big one would be search. So we've got, you know, every few months, a new blockchain comes out, um, you know, Solana most recently, but Tezos earlier in the year. And I mean, I mean, they don't just come out, they've been around, but they, they want to participate in these NFT markets. So you've got uh, a dozen plus um, blockchains that each have dozens of marketplaces, you know, um, and then artists operate across all of them. So the ability to sort of search and find artworks or artists across this sort of um, wide uh, ecosystem, it, it's pretty, there is no Google search for, you know, sort of um, NFTs today. So another thing that we're looking at is sort of building, you know, an agnostic search um, that works across all these different platforms and you can, you know, sort of follow artists. And people sometimes look at something like OpenSea and say, well, they've got great search, you know, like doesn't that solve the problem? But I think about OpenSea almost like Amazon, like Amazon has amazing search too, but you're probably not going to do your PhD research on Amazon, right? You're going to, because their goal is to sell you stuff, right? Now Google's goal is also to sell you stuff, but like, at least Google search, you know, um, helps you get to, to sort of more academic material. So, um, yeah, there was enough there that I decided to try to, to, um, to start a company. And it, it wasn't a decision that I took lightly. And I took sort of that initial angel investment and was lucky enough that this is a big space. And I have some impressive um, co-founders. Um, so we recently raised $4 million to try to help protect people's um, off-chain NFT assets and eventually to build out some search. My tech co-founder, Chris King, just spent six years in Google's as a senior software engineer in Google's legal tech firm, um, went to school with my younger brother, who we also just hired as my VP of engineering. Chris's sister um, has a Harvard undergrad degree in art history, went to Yale for finance, um, ran painting and sculpture at the MoMA for a while. So just surrounded by people that are a lot smarter than I am, which makes me feel good about trying to solve this problem. Uh, we thought maybe in a couple of years, some of these marketplaces would go out of business. Oh, two weeks after we launched, the second largest uh, NFT market, Hiccup Nunk, um, gave zero notice and just shut down um, as of, I guess, two days ago. Um, so we sort of went into um, disaster mode and, you know, our products aren't quite ready yet to give people the ability to sort of download and own their own uh, assets, which is the, the long term goal. Um, but we volunteered to pay the entire bill, um, IPFS bill to Infura to make sure that 
all of these assets will be protected so that artists and collectors don't have to, to freak out um, in the short term. So, yeah, I mean, never want to see that happen. Um, but at the same time, it, it's yet more validation. Everyone, you know, people tend to think that you're a little crazy um, and maybe doomsday-ish when you talk about these scenarios. Um, but it's it's pretty striking that just two weeks after sort of we launched that um, here we are. Wow. Well, so that was an awful lot to digest. One question I was hoping or one issue I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about because you experienced it firsthand was sort of what it was like between that period in 2017, 2018, when NFT markets sort of first started to coalesce and what happened in 2020, 2021, when all of a sudden they kind of burst into the mainstream with, as you say, the Beeple sale and so on. Like, I feel like there has to have been a lot taking place in that period of time, but it's never been quite clear to me exactly how we got from a place where it was a bunch of kind of tech enthusiasts investing $100 in the kind of generative art they thought was really cool and Christie's selling a Beeple for $69 million. I mean, there's a lot of space in between there. What happened? Yeah, I think... Um, you have to have an emotional connection and a strong community to weather a down period where um, not only are people not into something, but it's considered um, like a, a negative thing, right? So part of what happened, um, NFTs and crypto art, as we used to call it, tends to go the same direction as the cryptocurrency markets do. Um, even today, because the majority of people that are buying these things are people that have either made or in some cases lost um, wealth based on the volatility of the cryptocurrency market. So when there was a crypto crash in 2018, the number of potential collectors went down pretty dramatically, but um, didn't matter as much because no one was really getting rich back then on this. And a lot of us were in it because we thought that this was a, a potentially a way to build a, a better and new art world. So you don't get flapped when you weren't in it for speculation in the first place. It doesn't really bug you as much, you know, when, when that speculative element sort of goes away. Um, and so part of that crash was attributed to something called ICOs, um, international coin offering or something that I should know. Uh, but it's essentially like, was a fast way to raise money for companies um, that, you know, as opposed to alternative VC style structures and people put in money too fast. And there were a lot of companies that sort of came out as being scams and the whole sort of house of cards around ICOs crashed. Um, and so that's actually when I think we, we shifted from calling it um, crypto art. Um, a lot of people shifted from calling it crypto art to NFTs because the word crypto, it's hard for people to realize the entire world was fascinated with crypto in late 2017. Then crypto became a burnt word, like a word that you, we could, you couldn't use because they associate, everyone associated with ICOs. And I think that's where NFT actually comes out of. We needed an alternative word because it was such a bad word for a couple of years um, that we couldn't use it. Um, so those markets crashed, but those of us that kind of helped start the movement um, weren't really shaken by it. Like it didn't really, didn't really matter to us, but the interest went down. Right. So, um, I would say in 2018, what a lot of people don't realize is the people that were building the, the marketplaces didn't necessarily come from the art world. So they were technologists, a lot of them, right? So, you know, part of my role early on, like Super Rare, I was the first collector on Super Rare. And part of that was I could bring artists to the platform because I had this background in art. Um, and I would, it's hard for people to believe this. I have articles out where I'm like begging artists to get on um, platforms, the very same platforms that had waiting lists early in the year, right? Earlier in 2021, we were begging artists to try it out in early 2018. And the biggest problem 2018 was how do we get any artists to use um, any of these platforms, right? And then we eventually got artists on, but there's this cat and mouse game with um, supply and demand. So Artists came in, realized they could make some money there, um, but we didn't have enough collectors. So, um, you know, I think it was probably 2019. If 2018 was sort of the year of getting artists on the platforms, 2019 might be seen as the year of trying to get people to collect. And while we didn't have a lot of success in getting sort of broad adoption and large numbers of collectors, we had which uh, what we would sort of endearingly call whales, right? So 
there were these collectors, you know, maybe a dozen or so really important ones, maybe even less. I was going to say that could be an exaggeration, but I think it might even be less than a dozen who were just really wealthy individuals um, around the world who largely were anonymous, um, who bought in 2019 when no one else was buying, um, who really kept the, the entire market afloat from sort of a financial perspective. And it was probably late 2019 when they started getting a little competitive with each other and wanting to get earlier work. And that's when um, I saw offers for some of the stuff that I had bought in early on. Like people kind of became connoisseurs and valuing the stuff, even though it only had been a year or two, they naturally sort of gravitated towards the, the earlier work. So I would say the phases were getting the artists on, getting the collectors on. And then my friends from the traditional art world were saying, well, you don't even have a market until you have secondary sales, right? So then we were pushing for secondary sales and those whales were competing with each other to pay more and more for some of that earlier work. And that started getting um, notice and, and validation. And I think that's when, when the sums being paid for the earlier work went up. Um, that's when institutions like Christie's or Sotheby's started looking and thinking, ah, is this the, the next wave of art collecting? You know, we better we better take this more seriously and look at this. But it also coincided with the cryptocurrency markets getting really strong. So the ability for these collectors to spend money was going, you know, through the roof in late 2020, early 2021, um, which also coincided with everyone being stuck indoors for the pandemic for, you know, a year, year and a half. Um, and, you know, the way I describe that is pretty much the reason that we don't all drive Toyota Corollas, 10-year-old Toyota Corollas like I do, or wear white T-shirts and white pants or whatever is because so much of the money that we spend is around personal expression, right? The reason we have a fancy car or the glasses we wear or the jewelry we buy or the houses we have or the shoes that we buy is because we want to express ourselves. We're not going for the most efficient thing, but all those things in the year of the pandemic, when we only saw each other from the shoulders up, um, became sort of worthless, right? Like you didn't, you didn't get to show off your fancy, you know, Yeezy sneakers or whatever um, on Zoom. And uh, so there was this pent up demand to sort of um, spend to express ourselves. And I think that funneled into NFTs because we're online all the time and you could, you know, tr you know, send a tweet that you bought an NFT. And if you're maybe your goal is just to show you have a lot of money and you could be like, look, I bought a $10 million NFT and it would circulate, you know, and people would write stories about it. Um, or maybe you just really like this artist and you want people to know you like them. So you're sharing that you, you know, bought this NFT and other people should support them. And that all sort of naturally turned into what we're seeing as this PFP phenomenon where people are buying NFTs that signal certain blind to certain groups or having certain, you know, amounts of money or political views or any number of things just through your personal profile pick um, because people can sort of read and recognize the language around that. So I don't know, did I cover sort of sufficiently that, that time period? Yeah. And it, it raises a, a bunch of additional questions for me. I mean, one big one being, I think there's a tendency for people to talk about the NFT market as if it's at least two, maybe even more kind of interrelated, but distinct markets for like art, PFPs, collectibles, et cetera. Do you think that's the right way to think about it? Or is it more a kind of transformation of what we mean when we talk about art in the first place? Yeah, I think we're trying to, um, I often talk about how there's a price discovery. We're in a price discovery mode. I also think we're in like a language discovery mode or a classification discovery mode, right? Where new things are being born that we're trying to use old filters or, or language um, to, to classify. Um, and because of that, we struggle. But I think, I guess uh, not to use a fancy word that I don't fully understand, but I think we're seeing sort of disintermediation where there's like, uh, the walls between gaming, music, art, um, all these things are starting to, to get a little bit foggier, um, you know, and it's not always clear and convenient to sort of classify what one thing is and, and what the next thing isn't. Um, I think early NFTs kept it simple for the most part. It's like, here's an image and this is what the token looks like and we're going to tie it to this or whatever. But artists, as they do, are increasingly trying to intentionally break up your understanding of how these things work and, and, and what they are um, and how they classify them. So how that relates to the markets, I think 
for convenience, people like to say there's art and there's collectibles um, and sort of, you know, uh, have these nice rigid definitions. But CryptoPunks is probably the most successful project in the space. Um, and I think it's it's so successful because you can experience it um, as, an art, as a generative art project, a very serious um, and accomplished generative art project. Or you can experience it as like, hey, that one's cool, it's cute, and it looks like me, right? So it's got this like full spectrum, like the the, audi- the breadth of audience that can appreciate it is really wide. Um, you know, for, for me, so those are um, those 10,000 little faces are, are not hand-drawn each one after the other, but there was a code that was written that sort of combined all the different features together. That's a, a pretty standard um approach to generative art that you can see throughout generative art history that people, you know, kind of make these recombinations of um of different features together um and if you ask most people they would say about half would say you know oh that's fine art because they're selling at christie's now or whatever um or other people would say oh no those are collectibles because they're fun and art's this thing that like only intellectuals you know um like to stare at the black canvas or whatever right so um i i like that it's sort of breaking down the the classifications um and it makes us think a lot about the difference, I'm always very careful to talk about the difference between price and value. Um, so I think price is what someone will pay for something. And it only takes one crazy person with way too much money to spend uh, crazy amounts of money on literally anything. And the price goes you know, through the roof. And I think we often confuse price with value. You know, Since some one random drunk guy with billions of dollars spent millions of dollars on this one random thing, we often think that must mean it has value, which it doesn't necessarily, right? We're just, you know, we're fascinated when people drop a lot of money on things. Um, and then there's value, which is like, you know, when you go to the museum, you don't come home with the painting, right? You go to the museum because you actually value art and you have this experience where you get to sort of see people from the past that were really creative in the way that they looked at the world and like, you know, sort of this artistic uh, experience. So I think... Um, part of that distinction between collectibles and, and art is, you know, how much of it is driven by price and how much of it is driven by value. I think it's muddy. I don't think there's swim lanes. Um, and just like, I don't think there's maybe is obvious a swim lane between, you know, uh, visual art and music and, and gaming, like these, these sort of walls are sort of collapsing in ways that, that make people feel, some people feel uncomfortable, right? This whole space sort of makes some people feel uncomfortable. Um, but for people like me that like to see the snow globe, like constantly being shaken up, um, it's, it's really attractive. Yeah, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, because I've really noticed it as well. I mean, you mentioned earlier that there's a lot of people who've expressed environmental concerns about NFTs, which I think are real and understandable and, and need to be addressed. But it also seems that there's a much broader, deeper well of hostility out there among some people, um, some artists, some kind of people kind of more broadly, like in the kind of intellectual communities. Where do you think that's coming from and, and what does it reflect? Yeah, I think we all we all feel threatened um, that the positions that we we see ourselves in within society are sort of fragile, whether it's within our own family or our, our workspace or um, you know the the subgroup or subcultures that we belong to. And change, you know, I'm not like a psychiatrist or a sociologist or any of these things, but I've you know noticed sort of historically that change is threatening to humans. Right, we're kind of hardwired to be freaked out. Um, but when, when things change, so I've noticed it in particular, um, you know, I've got academic background and sort of digital art and digital art history. That's what my MFA is in, but I don't really do sort of walk the walk or talk the language or, or hang in those circles. But I think a lot of those circles in particular feel really threatened by this because they were sort of Kings and Queens of a small domain. And the narrative for them was like, we're into this really unique and important thing and everyone else doesn't get it, but we're at the top of our field. And their vision maybe of where the space would go is that it would slowly mature and that they would ride, you know, given their expertise and time spent in that space, they would rise along with it. But instead they woke up one day and the entire world cared like, you know, almost too much about their domain and they weren't part of the conversation. Um, so I, I get that, right? Like that's, that's a scary and confusing, um, you know, space to be in. So, you know, uh, I've often compared it to, you know, 
not only have I been interested in NFTs and kind of helping move them along for the last four or five years, but for the last good 20, 25 years, I've been interested in generative art. And, you know, that's really sort of where my expertise is and my focus and interest. So I've had 20 or 25 years of dinners where I start to talk about generative art and realize that no one gives a shit at all about what I'm talking about. And they start yawning and looking off. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is just a nerdy thing that I'm into. Same with NFTs for three or four years. Now, this year, out of nowhere, it's like the, the comparison I use is like it would be as if you were into snail racing, like really into snail racing for like 20 years. Right. And everyone is like, what a dullard. Like this guy is into snail racing. No one gives a shit about your snail racing. Right. And then you go to sleep and you wake up. And everyone's like, snail racing is awesome. Did you see the snail race today? I bought so many snails. We're going to have snail races. Like, I have the snail racing shirt. Did you get the rare snail racing shoes or whatever? And it's like, holy smokes. Like, everybody all of a sudden overnight loves generative art and loves NFTs. Although there are a lot of people that, like we just said, that hate NFTs or whatever. Um, and that that rapid um, shift, when, when we see changes like that, there are winners and there are losers. And the people that are, have worked hard to sort of ensconce themselves as sort of cultural leaders or academic leaders or, you know, um, collectors of traditional art, like all those people naturally feel threatened because um, it feels like the, the goals have moved overnight on what they were working towards, right? Um, the upside is that historically the people that benefited from the old cultural system looked like you and me, right? Um, so it was, you know, I've written a lot of articles using data so that I could sort of back it up that the art world hasn't been particularly, uh, the capital A art world hasn't been particularly kind or receptive um, to anyone but white men from the US and Europe, right? Um, so art by women, there's a stat out and it may have shifted over the last year or two, but as of fairly recently, sells by like a 40% discount uh, relative to art by men, Spent half my life in art school. I've never noticed gender having an impact on art one direction or the other. So, you know, it's just clear bias there. Um, you know, artists of color have, um, you know, also experienced like really difficult time getting into sort of this old art world that was really designed to exclude people. So if you were part of this, if you bought, especially if you bought your way in, I mean, if you bought your way into this old art world that defined itself by who it kept out, um, and then all of a sudden people just kicked your sandcastle over and said like, nope, there's a new art world and it's defined on how many people we can let in. Um, that's, that's offensive at the core to everything that they're into, right? Like, you know, it's like, and that's whether you got a PhD and worked your ass off for like 20 years to become one of the few people who people will listen to in this small domain, or you were born into a family of millionaires um, so that, you know, you got to be on the other side of the wall where in the rare air where not everyone else got to participate. Um, all those people should be threatened. Like their, their cultural relevance is disappearing really fast. Um, uh, and, and that's great. Sorry, this, you know, this is my opinion. Well, so Jason, in in closing and in light of the really provocative and exciting stuff you've just been saying, um, what do you see coming next, right? I mean, you've seen the history in a way that I think few other people have. You know the market and the field and you understand it in a deeper and richer way than a lot of other people sort of where do you see things going in the near future? And it seems like impossible to speculate about way in the distance because things have already changed so much, but like sort of like from where we are now, like what do you see next steps possibly being? And, and also maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of where you think people who are interested should go to learn more about what NFTs are all about, what the market looks like and how they can get involved. Yeah. So, um, when I look at where we're going in a, a more broad sense, if we look at the way other technologies have been adopted, we move away from the focus on the technology as things get normalized, right? So even if I look at this past four years, we wouldn't talk to someone about crypto art without giving them like an hour and a half long diatribe about blockchain and how blockchains worked right four years ago. And now I have to believe that something like 75% of people that collect NFTs um, have no interest in what a blockchain is or how it works at all, right? That's sort of a natural progression. Um, you know, it's funny. We talk about how hard it is to explain NFTs to people or blockchain. And I say, like, you know, if I tried to 
if my mother-in-law wanted to like, you know, print something out on her printer or whatever, if instead of like just showing her how to hit the button and like the results, I was like, okay, so there's laser jet and there's ink jet and there's dock matrix. And then there's this pivot arm on the inside. And like, so what we were guilty of as nerds four years ago was anytime anyone expressed any interest, we drug them through the technical description. And we rarely started with the benefit, which is like the benefit is like, it's great to collect art and support creatives. And like, here's a new economy where creatives can be more experimental. Instead, we put our nerd hats on and we're like, like you have to understand there's a, a you know an immutable ledger blah 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 so as that kind of fades into the background and this just becomes more normalized it's actually just part of this larger arc that we've seen in the last 30 40 years like people that hate the word like nfts is like a trigger word for some people so i i often when i talk about my company or where i see the future going i'll say okay throw throw nfts out for a second let's just look at the trends of the sort of dematerialization of culture so I grew up with records and then, you know, uh, cassettes and then CDs, and now my music's gone, right? And I didn't, like, rail and, like, pound my fist and yell at the sky, you know, that, you know, my, my the physicality of my music went away because it ha- it's sort of the boiling frog thing. It happened so slow that people didn't freak out quite as much. Um, similarly, the majority of my money went to books for a large portion of my life. I haven't picked up and read a physical book in probably a year and a half. I mean, I listen to Audible and podcasts and things like that, right? And I think most people are sort of that way, right? Our movies all, you know, sort of went from, you know, physical to to, to digital. Children today, I would argue, if they go to like McDonald's, would much rather have like an Animal Crossing character or like a Fortnite, you know, weapon than some hunk of plastic or whatever that's going to end up in a landfill. So we've got this arc towards digital ownership. um, And the younger you go generation wise, the more comfortable they are with this concept that the things they own actually don't exist physically um, and actually prefer it and and sort of expect it um, to a certain degree. So NFTs aside, NFTs just happen to be the the one of the better ways today to try to facilitate digital ownership. But NFTs aside, we're moving more and more towards um, uh, digital ownership, and I think that's going to be there's going to be growing pains across the board. I mean, one of the areas is sort of regulation. We didn't really get into it, and I'm not an expert, but I think um, you know a lot of the the folks that I've talked to from the sort of the legal side their opinion has just been kind of like, for lack of a better description, no. Just like, no, you can't, like, no, this can't happen. No, we're not ready. No, this has to be regulated. You know, um, no, the government's going to come in and shut all of this down, right? But I, I hope that's not the case because I think we are, you know, it's like sort of the breathy description or whatever, but I think we are having like a digital renaissance and the biggest threat to sort of like fast and awkward and beautiful growth like this is regulation, right? So hopefully people will stay intellectually curious and try to figure out ways to facilitate um, this rapid growth with the understanding that we're not going to get it right all the time, um, but that that it's sort of good and healthy um, to experiment and, and understand and explore um, and, and try new things. Amazing. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Uh, I learned so much talking to you and I'm really excited by all of the the big ideas that you've presented to us in this conversation. Thanks for having me, Brian. It was a lot of fun.
Τα δυο σου χείλη στάζουνε με λιγά Μαύρο μάτα μίση λούμου τρελή Τη ζωή μου αλλάζω με ένα φιλί Αχ, για χαμπίμπι με ένα φυλάκι Απ' το δικό σου το στοματάκι Σε κλέψω μέσα απ' την αραπιά Ζωή μου δίδω για να σου φιλήσω 